Now, in this world as we know it, life under the sun, those who follow Jesus Christ, I think the Bible is clear, says that we will never find a permanent home here. We find peace, yes, through Christ. He gives us rest and rest for the weary and rest for the burdened. But believing the gospel doesn't lead us into any settled life of ease and happiness here. This has always been true of God's family. The author to the book of Hebrews, if you remember when we went through that book, is clear about this when he writes concerning Abraham that by faith he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. In other words, to be a believer is to be a stranger and a misfit here. We have no permanent roots in this world. For the Christian, there is no sense of real belonging here. And yet, sadly, we often lose sight of the world to come. We lose sight of our home over and after the sun. Rather than living as nomadic pilgrims, we become resident citizens. Less like Abraham and a lot more like Lot. We plant deep roots in the here and now and and allow those roots to, to drink deeply from what this world has to offer us. We live and act as if the greatest treasures we'll ever know, they're all to be found right here. Jesus, of course, knew that this would be a temptation for us when he warned us not to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth where moth and and rust can destroy or where thieves can break in and steal. But lay up, Jesus says, treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or thieves can break in. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God has given us help, I think, to stop with all this wrong kind of storing up and help to start doing the right kind of storing, the storing of treasures in heaven. And one of the most helpful resources Jesus has provided for us is right here in the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that we've begun reading through and studying through last week. Last week, we saw the brutally honest answer to the question, what does all of our work and toil here on earth gain? And the answer Ecclesiastes gives us was this. It's all vanity. It's like a mere breath. Elusive, empty, and entirely insignificant. But now Solomon wants to support that answer, as encouraging as it is, by taking us deeper still and kind of sort of test his answer with some of the best counter-arguments the world has to offer. It's one thing to come out of the gate, like Solomon does in Ecclesiastes, and exclaim with passion, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But let's really consider, is having fun really that meaningless? Is working hard and contributing to the good of society really that meaningless? Is building wealth, growing in wisdom, Getting a solid education. Are all these things just mere vanity and nothingness? Each one of these counter-arguments, Solomon wants to explore, turn over, examine, unpack, and consider. 
He'll hold up wisdom and examine its worthiness as something that gives meaning and, and purpose to life. He'll look at pleasure and see whether it's a worthy pursuit in this life. He'll look at work and, and possessions and consider their value in giving people any real meaning in this life. And his conclusion will be the same. If you've turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, you can look there at verse 14. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all vanity. Solomon will pop each of these bubbles, exposing them all for the weightless insignificance they are, and he will do so with the needle of death. For Solomon, death is that great reality facing every human being. Death is the one ultimate certainty that makes everything we pursue here under the sun to be, in the end, absolutely futile. But, so you don't run out totally discouraged within the first five minutes of this sermon. In this passage, we'll read, there's also, I think, a surprising glimmer of hope. A shaft of sunlight breaking through the clouds of cynicism, which marks so much of this chapter. Solomon will actually end this section and consider how death, far from being something that makes life in the present completely empty, death is a reality that can actually radically enable us to enjoy life itself. By relativizing everything we do under the sun, yes, death really does make all of our pursuits and endeavors very insignificant. But for Solomon, there's actual wisdom in that. Being honest about death can actually change us from being a people who want to control life and and pursue all these different endeavors to find ultimate meaning and squeeze out of it any kind of purpose and change us into people who instead find deep joy in simply receiving life as a gift. What we'll see this morning and what I think Solomon is trying to show us in this passage is that in this fallen world under the sun and in light of death where the sun will cease to rise for each and every one of us, life is not meant to be seen as something to be gained, but simply as a gift to be enjoyed. Life in God's world is a gift. Let's read our passage and ask God to help us as we seek to apply it. I'll start in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, and read all the way through to the end of chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold... All is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in such wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Or as the notorious B.I.G. put it, more wisdom, more problems. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. 
I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who were before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king only what he's already been done? Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, Yet you will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart from which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in which you've given us, a time where your word is opened up to us. Father, we know that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is a light to our path, a light within our darkness. And Father, now as we come before it, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, apply it effectively to our hearts. Give us wisdom. Give us knowledge. Give us the right perspective 
to see the vanity of all life so that we might better enjoy here in the bitterness of what lies before us the sweetness of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to look at what Solomon is telling us this morning from three different perspectives, three different angles. The first angle is the great human pursuit. The great human pursuit. And then I want us to see the great human problem, which leads finally to a wise human perspective. The great human pursuit, followed by a great human problem, ending with a wise human perspective. Blaise Pascal, I think, wisely commented that all men seek happiness. This is without exception, says Pascal. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end, to the pursuit of happiness. And I think he's right. Just about everything you've done this week, even this morning, you've done to the end goal of finding happiness. You fed yourself to make yourself happy. You get hangry if you don't. You stayed in the shower a bit longer because the kids were downstairs fighting. But even the sacrifices that you made, you did those because you know that in the long run, sacrificing now will make you happier down the road. Some people spend their paycheck in pursuit of happiness now. Others save their paychecks in pursuit of happiness later. Some see joy in that second Five Guys burger now, that's me. Others find joy in being fit and therefore foregoing the Five Guys burger, my wife. (laughs) But the motivation's the same, happiness. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is no different than us. He tells us in verse 13 that he's set out to explore everything that is done under the sun. And he really means to do so. He's on a quest for satisfaction and in fighting happiness. And and in that satisfaction, in that quest for happiness, he wants to see if he can find a worthy meaning to life. His first area of exploration, verses 16 through 18, he tells us that he sought to find satisfaction in wisdom. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. This is an interesting place for Solomon to begin, I think, for two reasons. The first is that you, you can explore the depths of wisdom and knowledge... And if you do that rightly, well, then you've already begun an understanding, a knowledge of every other area of life. He starts, I think, in the right place. He starts by trying to understand understanding. He wants to understand why and how he even understands. What is the light that helps me shed light on all other areas of life? What philosophers would say, epistemology. If you ask me, I think that's incredibly wise. And yet, even here, seeking to get to the base of it all, the the ground level of how he knows, right at the beginning, seeking to understand the very basis for knowledge and knowing itself, Solomon concludes it's all vanity. It's a striving after the wind. I think it's also interesting because Solomon really was the wisest man to walk the earth. Or at least that's what scripture tells us. In 1 Kings 3, verse 12, it says that God said to Solomon, Behold, 
I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. Later in 1 Kings chapter 4, we read that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, an immeasurable wisdom, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all people. Finally, in 1 Kings chapter 10, the summary account of Solomon's life reads thus, that King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. The whole earth sought his presence to hear out his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. In other words, if anyone's resume fit the job of exploring what the world had to offer with wisdom as his guide, it was King Solomon. And yet, what do we read? The wisest man to have ever assessed and considered the significance of wisdom and knowledge in the end says what? Behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And isn't it wild that Solomon's wisdom was a wisdom given to him by God? It was a divine gift of wisdom that went over and above all other wisdom. And yet even with all of that, life under the sun remained unchanged. Life under the sun, even with divine wisdom imputed and imbued within him, was still vanity. This is a fascinating move by the preacher. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is given to us for the purpose of wisdom. It's wisdom literature. We're meant to read the book of Ecclesiastes and come away with more wisdom and helping us how to live. Helping us to know how to live. Moreover, throughout the book, we're going to see a number of places where wisdom is held up as good. Something that Solomon himself says is worthy. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Solomon says he's still being guided by wisdom. And he sees that as a good thing. In other words, wisdom has its place. Later in chapter 7, three times he will extol the virtue of wisdom by telling us how wisdom preserves and protects life. He'll tell us wisdom gives us strength. He'll say that men are able to properly weigh all their experiences rightly through wisdom. In chapter 8, Solomon says that wisdom gives joy. In chapter 10, possessing wisdom is the means to living a successful life. Solomon knows and rightly appreciates wisdom. See what he says in chapter 2, verses 13 through 14? Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. In other words, it's wiser to walk down the stairs at night with a flashlight than to stumble down them in the dark. But as we'll see, wisdom in the end, wisdom cannot provide the satisfaction needed in this fallen world of vanity. Four times he repeats that wisdom is vanity. Next, Solomon gives himself to pleasure, literally trying to find a morsel of real satisfaction in self-indulgence. See there in chapter 2, verse 1? Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then look down at verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Again, this is a bit staggering to think about because if any man could truly explore the far reaches of doing 
whatever he wanted. It was King Solomon. His unimaginable wealth and his status as a king, the celebrity status par excellence in Israel, allowed him access to actualize every detail of his imagination. Perhaps a bottle of wine would do the trick. No? Perhaps two. No? Well, let me try some more, says Solomon. Again, Solomon will fact, in fact, later extol the virtues and goodness of wine. But his point is clear here. As a means of establishing meaning and, and, and finding unfading satisfaction here and now, wine or any other substance which gladdens the heart is only but a fading trick. Shortly after the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind figured out a way to forget their troubles by drinking wine. For various reasons, it's been hard for American Christians to sympathize with this kind of uh, idea. But nonetheless, the scriptures are clear. Psalm 104 verse 15 tells us that God gave humanity wine to gladden the heart. Proverbs 31 clearly states that wine, strong wine, should be given to help those in distress so that they might remember their misery no more. And these passages fit, though, in exactly with what Solomon is exploring here in Ecclesiastes. In other words, when a thinking man looks around at this world as it is, he looks around and sees the absurdity and the illogical violence and death that marks so much of society from the beginning of history. Well, who wouldn't desire a bottle of wine. And yet even this, says Solomon, is vanishing. Because when the bottle is empty, well, so too is the emptiness of this fading world. Wine couldn't change a thing, only but a brief, brief distraction. Solomon's hedonistic pleasure-seeking didn't stop, though, with just wine. He built houses, vineyards, gardens, orchards. He had servants, Herds, silver, gold. But when all the monuments had been built and all the impressive work accomplished, only a fool could not see the emptiness of it all. It was a mirage, a charade. Ambrose Bierce once defined a mausoleum as the final and funniest folly of the rich. Old Aunt Teresa, well, she really used to be somebody, and so she built a great tomb to prove it. Men who build great buildings and, and then put their, their names on them are often extolled for their public service and, and they're imagined to have their names last through history. But in the end, what have they really accomplished? They've only built hollow buildings for all the hollow people to live in and work in. Now, of course, Solomon pursued the pleasure of sex as much as of any wealthy king could ever dream of. Chances are that Solomon gave way to every vice and indulged in every conceivable exploration the human mind could give into. He had, within his vast estates, over a thousand women at his beck and call. And yet, what was the conclusion of this? Verse 11. It was all vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained from it while here under the sun. This section is clear wisdom for us. Wisdom for those tempted to find any kind of lasting meaning in any of these pursuits. This road has already been traveled well and explored in all its entirety by Solomon. So what foolishness it takes 
to read what we read here and yet think we can explore that same road and get to a different destination, find a different conclusion. When you get to the end of this road, the road that Solomon has gone down and the road that many of us still try and pursue week after week, the road just stops. And at the end, the mirage of happiness vanishes. The bubble bursts. So we've seen here through Solomon's experiences this great human pursuit, the great hunt for happiness and satisfaction in a world marked by absurdity. But through this pursuit, we've also seen the gathering clouds of darkness on the horizon. In each one of these pursuits, Solomon has concluded that he cannot ultimately make the world different from how it actually is. Do you see that there in chapter 1, verse 15? That's what he means. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. After all his projects and counting all of his treasures and possessions and exploring every pursuit of pleasure his eye can lay upon, he realizes he is left with only sandcastles being washed away on the beach. And the one great shadow that is encroached upon it all the one unchanging reality that isn't washed away by the ever-coming ever tides of the, sh- uh, of, the, of the sea, that one unchanging reality that has punctured and popped every pursuit like a balloon against a rusty nail is the reality of death. Death is that great human problem. The wise person has eyes in his head, says Solomon in verse 14, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, says Solomon, I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Death stalks both the wise and the fool. Death is there to snatch away everything from both the poor and the rich. No matter what you've done with your life, in the end, it'll all be indistinguishable. The bones of Bill Gates will look no different than the bones of the poorest man living in the favelas of Brazil. You see verse 16? For of the wise, so also of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, everything will have been forgotten. Again, just as I quoted Al Mohler last week, after we die and our relatives pour dirt over our bodies, they just go in to have potato salad and go on with their life. For Solomon, and I think this should be true of us as well, It is the reality of death that alters his perspective on all his achievements in life. It slowly begins to dawn on him that all of his possessions, all of his achievements will be left to someone else. And as he shows in verse 18 and 19, although he was wise, what's to say that his riches and earnings and building projects won't fall into the lap of a fool? What Solomon is doing is is returning us to the agony and the repetition of chapter 1. A generation comes and a generation goes, but in the end we'll all be dead and gone and soon forgotten. <coughs> now, Perhaps this sounds far too bleak and pessimistic, especially for a church service where you know, you're supposed to kind of worship and feel happy and happy-clappy and always chipper. One, in light of that, just read through the book of Psalms where Uh, worship is taught to us and and see how unhappy and not chippy most of those psalms are. God really is worshipped and can be worshipped in honest reflection like this, even when it hurts. But secondly, if, if you're sitting here 
too uncomfortable with this kind of reflection? Might it be because you've re- you re- uh, refused to seriously reflect on the brevity of life yourself? If you haven't ever wondered why it matters what you do, given that one day you'll be a forgotten nobody, then have you thought much about the reality of death? Solomon's question in verse 22 should should bore into our hearts and minds with a reverberating clamor that keeps us up at night. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? What am I gaining from what I'm doing? How easily we're diverted, distracted really, right? From wrestling with the seriousness of this question. And it's easy to understand why we get so distracted. Persistent angst is what sets in when you stare hard at the reality of the grave. Everything death takes away from us. The ruthless nature of its inescapable reality. Who really wants to think about the fact that we're going to die at any moment, let alone actually prepare for it in any deliberate way? So we've given ourselves wholesale to to a repertoire of distractions and diversions to keep us from staring into the bleak reality of death. Lost on Instagram, lost on Facebook, lost in wine, lost in our jobs, lost in trying to make our families great, lost in trying to make our country great. The one thing we don't want to do is sit alone and think and stare into the bleak mirror of death. And again, I think Solomon is entirely against many of the things that we usually, or he's not against many of the things we usually give ourselves to, as we'll see more and more. He extols and celebrates wisdom and, and hard work and good food and great wine. But the question he's driving at, the real question he's wanting us to ask is this. Can we cope with looking death in the eyes, honestly and deeply, or are we trying to live in bubbles we think will never burst? Are you honest about life here under the sun with all of the vanity it contains in light of death? Or are you trying to hold on to and squeeze as much out of it as you can in order to postpone or push to the side the reality of death? If you get that, if you're willing to truly wrestle with that question, well then and only then are you ready to receive Solomon's first glimmer of hope or in keeping with the subheadings of my sermon, only in being honest about the great human problem of death will we see the vanity of the great human pursuit of happiness, and only then will we be able to have a wise human perspective. And it's at the end of chapter 2 where Solomon turns to offer us that wise human perspective on living life under the sun. Throughout this passage, he he burst the bubbles of pleasure and profit. He's, he's popped the bubbles of materialism and laughter. The sharpness of death has pierced all of our pretensions of ultimate happiness. But now the preacher does something very surprising. He bursts the bubble of death. Solomon's prescription for living the good life doesn't seem like much in verse 24. Look at it. There's nothing better for a person, he says, than that he should eat, and drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. At first glance, that seems like simple nihilism. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But there is, I think, 
A subtle but essential difference between the nihilism of eat, drink, and be merry and that of what Ecclesiastes is showing us here. And it's this. Nihilism says eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. Ecclesiastes says eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. Nihilism says eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. Solomon is telling us to enjoy our work and food and drink because that's what there is. In this fallen and fleeting world marked by death, God has given the good things of this world to us. And they're to be enjoyed simply because they're to be enjoyed. That's it. In other words, when you accept in a deep way the truth that you are going to die that reality can actually keep you from expecting too much out of all the good things we pursue. Honesty about death helps us learn to pursue the things of this world for what they are in and of themselves. Rather than things we need to find happiness and meaning and distraction in, death, honesty with death, reorients us to our limitations as creatures. And then once we get that, helps us to see God's good gifts that are right in front of us. Instead of squeezing all we can out of the gifts in some vain attempt to escape the reality of this fallen world, instead, we see these gifts simply as a good gift from God to be enjoyed. What if our work was never intended to make us successful, but simply to make us faithful and generous? What if food wasn't meant to be merely fuel, but rather a daily joy we see from God's good hand? Do you notice how in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, the language used to describe Solomon's building projects, it's strikingly similar to the language used describing the Garden of Eden. See that? I planted vineyards. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. It's almost as if you were trying to recreate God's good and perfect world. In all his endeavors, in all of our endeavors, are we not all yearning and striving to get back to that place of perfect happiness and satisfaction that our first parents enjoyed in paradise? But the point Solomon has been getting at is that it can't be done. The world in which we live is now fallen and cursed. It's God himself who has placed a fracture within this fabric of the universe. All things are not as they should be. And there's nothing we can do to make it right. When we have a funeral, it's good to grieve because we're realizing that's not the way life's supposed to be. Death should not happen. And there's nothing we can do to prolong it. There's nothing we can do to escape it. See back there in chapter 1, look at verse 13. This world... And all our vain pursuits within it, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of Adam to be busy with. Then look there at verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 8.20, God has willingly subjected all creation to futility. Under this side of the sun, We're limited because we're creatures, mere creatures, fallen creatures. And because we're fallen, we all have this kind of built-in, misapplied assumption 
for what it means to live in the world. We wrongly assume that things like work and and possessions and money and people and pleasure and food and wine, that they're all something to leverage for our own gain. More, more, more. Tools to somehow master life and escape the absurd vanity of it all. But Solomon's whole point here is to show us that the world can't be leveraged to suit me. Life should be enjoyed in light of death, not mastered and misused to escape death. Did you notice how God is conspicuously absent throughout most of this passage? He shows up at the very beginning in verse 13, where Solomon says that God has given mankind the happy, unhappy business of now living in a cursed world. But look now at the end, in verses 25, uh, 24, 25, and 26. God explodes on the scene, being mentioned three times and even referenced a fourth. And the emphasis there in those verses, do you see that? Is on what God has given. It's what God gives. In verse 24, Solomon tells that finding joy in what we eat and drink and in our work, it's all a gift from the hand of God. What a profound truth that is. That within this life of Havel, this this life of emptiness and vanity, God has still provided good gifts to be enjoyed. But even more profound, I think, is what Solomon says in verse 25. Apart from God, who can even have enjoyment? In other words, God not only gives gifts to be enjoyed, even more importantly, God gives the ability to enjoy. True enjoyment cannot come from the gift itself. If it did, why do we always want more? How come when we get our new iPhone, we can't wait for the new upgrade? Perhaps more to Solomon's point. Inherent within fallen humanity is an inability to rightly enjoy good gifts. We're unable to do it in this futile and fallen world. And and so the question is, how do we even begin to eat and drink and, and find enjoyment in our toil? Answer, God gives us the grace. God gives us the ability to enjoy all these things. See there in verse 16? To the one who pleases him, God has given him gift. I'm sorry, verse 26. To the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. You see the striking contrast between Solomon's quest for joy and happiness? In the first half of the passage, it's clear it doesn't come from man's striving. It can't. But now in the last half, it's clear it comes only from God's giving. God gives these things to the person who pleases him. <clears throat> At the end of St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul makes the astounding point that if Jesus had not been resurrected from the dead, then the best that we could do is to eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, if all we have to look forward to is death, then yeah. Man should do nothing but squeeze out of life as much pleasure as he can before he dies. For what else is there? But of course, Paul's point is that death did not keep Jesus. Jesus really did get back up after he succumbed to death's grip. Jesus is alive now. And because of that, if we believe in him, we too will not end this life in death, but will only pass from life under the sun to a new resurrection life over and after the sun. And this is why Paul commands the Corinthians to wake up from their drunken stupor. And so must we. In light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
we can rightly enjoy God's good gifts in a balanced and wise way. And this pleases God. After Jesus had miraculously prepared a meal for over 5,000 people by the Sea of Galilee, the people ate and, and, and they, they liked what they ate. And so they hurried and they, and they caught up to Jesus. They were hoping that Jesus could do it again. They wanted to make him king because he was a guy who could provide all the pleasures of life like that, miraculously creating meals and, and the best wine whenever he wanted Jesus turns around and looks at this prosperity gospel entranced people and he tells them plainly, you're seeking me not because you saw signs because, but because you ate your fill of the loaves of bread. And then he says this, truly, truly, I tell you, do not labor, do not strive for the food that perishes, but seek that food that endures unto eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And so the crowd responds, Tell us, Jesus, we we want this eternal life. Tell us, what must we do to be pleasing God? Here's his answer. Jesus says, this is what pleases God, that you believe in him who the Father sent. That you believe in Jesus Christ and you find your ultimate satisfaction and your ultimate happiness in him. Because when that happens, then God begins to give you the ability to enjoy everything else When Christ becomes your treasure, nothing else becomes your idol. And you can treasure it in worship to the good gift giver. 